what I started to realize is that it's not so much about the big number, but it's the small wins that we're getting along the way. It was the small little incremental, what I would call leading KPIs that actually started to build the confidence that I had to be able to accomplish this big change. And so that's what I would encourage leaders to do is that as you're starting to position your sales team to get the dopamine lighting up, to have them putting their buyers first in all of this, is to identify small changes that can be measured that shows your salesperson a quick win that then will compel them to want to do more changes. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast, here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready, to unlock reality and reach your full potential, then this show is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman coming to you from the Gong Studios. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Danny the Rev Wasserman coming to you for this week's episode of Reveal. Our guest hailing from the Northeast and as the founder of Unbound Growth, the author of Buyer First. Yes, what is she talking about? Make your buyer first as the book is called. What's she saying? Well, before you can even go out into the world of sales, make sure that you have some pretty upbeat, positive thoughts about the process. Because if you're out of whack and thinking what it is that you have to do does not have any nobility, you've already forfeited the race. There are things that Carol talks about in this episode that I love. Well, she goes to the word exchange. And by definition, she talks about that word meaning that it happens to multiple parties and their involvement in this exchange rather than it being one-sided. And in that observation, she challenges us all to think, well, is sales happening to the customer or is it happening with or alongside or for the customer? And if you're thinking, oh my God, I need a course correct because I've been making my sellers victimize my customers, you sure as hell can believe that those customers on the receiving end of that tech are not having a surge of dopamine light up when they're engaged. Lean into this episode, learn a little bit more about how you're going to unlock that dopamine reaction. With that said, DJ, spin that. Ladies and gents of Reveal, welcome back to another weekly episode coming to you from the Gong Studios. Joined today by someone who is the embodiment of that quintessential Northeastern, I wouldn't say warm and fuzzies, but resilience, grit, perseverance. And yes, man, she is a barrel of laughs. So do not be intimidated by that New England upbringing of hers. She describes growing up in a household of entrepreneurs, which inspired her to eventually strike out on her own. You will also know her to be the author of Latest, what will surely go on to be a bestseller in the sales profession, buyer first with 4.8 out of five stars on Amazon. In addition, the founder of Unbound Growth, and moonlighting regularly at Harvard Business School as a sales coach, we have in the house, Carol Mahoney. Carol, welcome to Reveal. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Danny. This is so exciting. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, well, let's talk about one thing that is splattered boldly across your LinkedIn, which is this internal discussion that we all have to have with the taste of sales in our mouths. Is it sour? Is it icky? I think the words you use, was it slimy and sleazy? Mm -hmm. Or as one of our guests who's been in the studios before, do we believe that to sell is a privilege and there's nobility and authority and prestige assigned to the 
entire profession of sales. So talk to us a little bit about how we start eradicating those nasty stigmas that are perhaps swirling in our minds or our mouths. Yeah. And and here's the thing is Daniel Pink wrote his book to sell as human like over 10 years ago. And in it, yeah, he yeah. wrote about how seven out of 10 of us see sales as pushy, slimy and sleazy. Yeah. It hasn't changed all that much, unfortunately, despite all of the technology that we're trying to use to get better at sales. And a lot of times what I and this is what I have found in my both personal experience and the clients that I work with, and, and even at Harvard, is that our perceptions of what sales is all about and what good sales looks like a lot of times comes from our own experience with salespeople that we've dealt with in the past, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've all had that used car salesman story that we all cringe at that still happens today. Yeah, and yeah. unfortunately, when you ask people today, what do they think of when they think of a salesperson? That's what they think of. Yeah. The used car salesperson with the pushy tactics, going through their checklist, the aggressiveness of it. And honestly, even when you get into technology sales and these other types of sales, you still see the remnants of some of these tactics, right? Like using discounts to try to create urgency in the sale or, you know what, this is a limited time offer. And if you don't take advantage of this now, then it's never going to exist again and you're missing out. All of these have created and perpetuated this perception of sales as pushy, as slimy, as sleazy. It's why you don't see kids dressing up for Halloween as a salesperson, right? They're everything and anything else other than that. And I think that it's in order to change this perception of sales as pushy, slimy, and sleazy, we have to take the focus off of ourselves. What do we sell? What do we want? What are we doing in our sales process? How am I going to convince you of this, persuade you of this, i.e. manipulate you to do what I need you to do for me? And instead, focus it on what do our buyers need in order to have an experience where they feel confident and comfortable and making a decision that's in their best interest. I do believe that sales is a privilege. It is a noble profession. This is how we make the world a better place by connecting problems and solutions together. The problem is our buyers don't see it that way. And ironically, sellers, I, there was actually a study that was done about a thousand salespeople. And what they found is that salespeople also distrust other salespeople. We need to fix this and we need to change this dynamic. For us to see at Halloween next year, all the little boys and girls dressed up, hopefully not as Alec Baldwin from Glengarry Gunler Ross, but right. whatever your appropriate sort of attire would be for a you know 21st century seller. What evangelism needs to take place so that the defaults are not a doctor, a firefighter, mm -hmm. a policeman or woman who clearly provides some value, right? Like we can all agree that societally those roles are contributing. And it's not to say that sellers don't contribute value, but in this sort of crusade to evangelize a new taste in everyone's mouth of what sellers can do and honestly should be doing, where do we even start if we're even thinking about raising the next generation of people who don't snicker and sneer at the idea of being relegated after they graduate to a career in sales? Yeah. And you mentioned doctors, right? Like, you know, this, this is a, a well-known, respected profession, but it wasn't always the case. In fact, prior to the Renaissance, doctors were seen as religious fanatics and barbarians of whom no one trusted, but dealt with because they had to, because they had no other choice. I'll deal with the salesperson because I have to, and I have no other choice. It wasn't until they started introducing the scientific process and dissection and anatomy into the medical profession during the Renaissance that it started to gain the level of respect and credibility that most of them take for granted today. And I won't even go into the whole thing, like, you know, but where this medical profession lies today, because there's yeah. a 
those issues there. But that is exactly where the sales profession is today, right now. We are in the cusp of a renaissance. And my belief is that if we, one, examine the origin of sales, both within ourselves and the industry as a whole, to understand how we got to this place by following the tactics of a few, like the medical profession did, or, you know, basing it off of, you know, what the latest trend or fad is. I mean, the weight loss industry has made themselves billions off of doing this, and so has the sales industry. But if we instead base our best practices in sales, our frameworks in sales to first be other focused for the best intent of the other person helping them to make a decision. And then second, by then looking at what are the psychological, neurological, sociological, and data-driven ways that we can start to apply standardized best practices to sales so that it's not the, this is the latest acronym for sales that's going to be the latest fad, but this is a framework of how we actually use the scientific process to collaborate to align with our buyer's process in a way that is more predictable and one that can be easily adapted to the changes in the marketplace. That's where I think we need to get in a sales profession. Enough of the, the latest fad is AI, but let's more focus on how do we actually get predictable results using science. Well, when you talk about science as your North Star, want to just celebrate your book, which is basing its determinations off of over 2 million, I think it's 2.2 million sellers. So we can rest yeah. really softly at night knowing that what is in your book is grounded, not just in, I don't know, uh, pontification, but in fact, you have really rigorously studied the entire craft. So let's talk about now because our listeners have begged and pleaded. We bring in the experts like you, Carol, and they talk about, hey, like this is sort of theoretically what we should be doing. But let's get down to brass tacks. So tactically speaking, how can we apply neuroscience? How can we apply biochemistry? Whatever the science is telling, even just how our brains are hardwired, what can you help shepherd us through to arrive at this coup de grace state of nirvana selling? <laughs> nirvana selling. So I know that I talk a lot about not making it about us, that we need to look at our perceptions and our intent in sales to make it all about our buyer. But honestly... To start transforming the way that we're selling, we actually do have to look inwardly. We have to start with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, if we take uh, what I call a cognitive behavioral approach to sales performance, which is we're addressing the negative mindsets that impact our behaviors and then our results. Like this is where all of human behavior stems from is what we believe about the behaviors that we're about to do. In psychology, they call it the theory of planned behavior and the theory of reasoned action. The way that we think about it and what we consider to be normal and what we think would be good, this is what a good salesperson should do, then that becomes our beliefs and mindsets towards it. And that becomes how we do it or how we don't do it in some cases. And so by starting with ourselves and understanding what are my perceptions of sales? What is, what is the origin of these beliefs that I have about sales? For example, one of the most common beliefs that I see in salespeople today and in leaders is that people need to like me in order to buy from me. Now, obviously, we don't buy from people who we despise, we have no respect for, but this belief that people need to buy from me and people need to like me in order to buy from me, what that does is it causes this need for approval from our buyers. When we need our buyers to like us, then we're less likely to ask them challenging and tough questions that might cause them to dislike us. And when we don't do those things, then we don't uncover compelling reasons for change. We don't uncover their ability to make decisions. We don't uncover the impact that this is going to have on them, both positively and negatively, because we won't ask those tougher questions to understand where they're at, where they're coming from and where they need to get to. And so 
First, by understanding what are the beliefs that I have that are getting in my way? How does that lend to the behavior that I need to do? That's, I think, step number one. Um, I think the next step that we need to start taking in sales to create a more scientific process to this is getting a clear framework on how we're going to be devising our messaging and how we're going to actually be doing our outreach to people. You know, there's no lack of try this tip or this trick or this hack to get people to open rates of X, Y, and Z. But what we're not looking at is how do we systematically create best practice frameworks that people can experiment with and customize to their particular buyers. And that takes a bit of research. That also takes a bit of understanding of what is the decision science behind how people build trust and how they actually make decisions. So first, starting with ourselves, what are the beliefs that I have that are getting in the way? And then what are the strengths and weaknesses that I need to work on in order to be fully present with my buyers, for example, or not seeking their approval? And then combining that with, there's so much neurological science and data that's available about how people make decisions today, yet we're still throwing the same old tactics at them. We're just doing more of it, hoping that it will somehow break through the noise. And so by being more, I want to say, deliberate in how we're doing things, rather than just throwing the spaghetti at the wall, we're, we're training our buyers to ignore us instead of creating those customized, targeted questions and messagings that reflect where they're at. I want to get to decision science in particular, maybe audibling from a shotgun scattershot approach to more of a rifle prescriptive and personalized way. Before we sort of dive into that, I do want to ask, going back a step to this internal dialogue, like what is my taste in sales? But in particular, then do I have, if I believe sales to be a noble profession, do I have the audacity, the gall, the courage to ask some hard questions and underline that courage? I think is how we stigmatize tension. And as a seller, you're asked to cultivate rapport with a stranger. Inherently, you don't want to do business or take phone calls from jerks. You want to do that with people you like. So we have a paradox on our hands. Mm. You have to be willing to ask tension-inducing hard questions to unearth compelling reasons to buy or do something different. And yet you need to do it in a way that engenders some degree of likability calibrating that amount of tension can be really tricky, especially if you're new to sales. So do you have any advice? How do you avoid over-rotating where you induce so much tension? Now, all of a sudden, you get pegged as an asshole or a fear monger. And alternatively, how do you, I don't know, find yourself tiptoeing around tension where you're too nice, you're too friendly, you don't have a spine, and you just fold on whatever the customer wants, or they just don't take you seriously? What is that Goldilocks amount of tension that we should be aiming to strike? So before you can challenge someone, you have to have earned the right. Okay. Uh, you have to have earned the right. You have to have built the rapport and the level of trust with them that you can then ask that challenging question. I am all for the challenger sale. However, because of the way that people believe about how they need to execute something, it, it typically comes off as just being a jerk. Like yeah. you're just being a jerk. That's all there is to it. And instead, what the challenger sale, for example, is talking about is to be able to deliver insights to a buyer that they hadn't fully considered before or didn't necessarily know about. And these are the things that buyers are literally asking us for. Tell me something I don't know. How does this apply to my situation and my circumstance? So one of the ways that when I'm coaching business owners and sellers and leaders in how to do this, uh, you know, sort of tough ask questions is look at the person who you're talking to. 
I'm a big fan of disc profiling as far as understanding yeah. what someone else's communication style is. And so then looking at what is this particular person's communication style? How do they at different stages of the process prefer to be interacted with? You know, for example, if I'm talking with someone who's a high D and I go in and I start, you know, how's the weather? How's your kids with sports team? They're going to be like, yeah, I don't really care. Can we just get to the point? Versus if I'm talking to someone who's an I and I'm going right into the point and hard facts and hard data, they're going to be like, hey, dude, I'm a human being like, like chill out. And so we need to be able to customize our approach based on what we understand about the person that's going to be in front of us. And so there's tools and technologies to help us do that. There's some tips that I can share with you. Like if you go to someone's LinkedIn profile, for example, look at the recommendations that they've given to other people. What do they value the most in others? Gives you a clue as to how you want to approach the conversation with that individual. When is the right time to start pushing back on them? It's certainly not going to be within the first three minutes of your conversation. For most anybody, but it is going to be at some point in the conversation that they're going to be looking to you to give them some kind of an insight into something. How you deliver that is going to depend on the person and doing your research beforehand instead of walking into it cold is how you prepare. Your customer's needs should be a top priority. If you don't take the time to foster that level of relationship, gather information on their business, you know what? You're going to leave money on the table. Carol's experience proves that sales outcomes are way better when you make sales for or with the customer as opposed to two. A study from HubSpot shows that 70% of buyers are more likely to buy from salespeople who understand their business and needs. The homework you do in advance and the time you take to invest in that customer research really matters because you see, Homework also has its advantages. 68% of buyers say they are more likely to buy from salespeople who provide them with valuable insights and information. That study comes from LinkedIn. Well, let's get back to Carol and let's hear a little bit more. This is a fantastic transition back to my point that I parking lot because I think it comes full circle to decision-making science and you talking about, you know, Right or wrong, we have trained, we have conditioned our buyers to switch us off, to mute us, to tune us out. And what you're trying to do is break through that impasse that's being created as we desensitize our buyers. And you talk about the convergence of the science and the neurological pathways, the cognitive abilities for us to actually understand to then translate back into our outreach. What is the blending of all of that research and science with technology? Talk to us a little bit about technically and tactically, how you move forward using both of those in harmony. So I'll, I'll give you an example from, from coaching. So um, Zach was a BDR for a publicly traded company that I worked with. And we went through, you know, the first step that I go through with everyone I work with is understanding what are their personally meaningful goals, which we can dig into that later. So that way I can understand what's in it for you, not just meeting your quota. By the way, sales leaders, quotas are about as motivating as paying your taxes and student loans in the morning. Like you're excited to do that. No. But understanding what's in it for them, what's their personally meaningful goal and wanting to just stretch outside of their comfort zone. Yeah. So then after doing that and, and then Zach had taken an evaluation to understand what are some of the beliefs and mindsets that I have towards sales that might be getting in my way. For example, the need to be liked. I need people to like me in order for to buy from me. And so having an understanding of what might get in my way internally to be able to clearly communicate and be in the present moment and see my buyer, that's the first place to start. Then let's look at 
What is the person who you're looking at, the person on the other side of this video screen, what's important to them? So it, it, based on their role, uh, one of the things that I have almost all of my sellers do is set up Google alerts for the role of the company that or the role of the person that you're trying to, to infiltrate and talk to, and then get a sense of how long is their tenure? How are the, what are the metrics that they're measured by? What are the key initiatives within their company that they're now responsible for? Were they just newly hired? Do they need to prove themselves? Or have they been around for a while and they're trying to show how they're still relevant and leaving a legacy? These are all things that can give you clues as to how to approach a particular prospect and also what's gonna be important to them. And then when I'm working with my salespeople and my leaders on how to run discovery conversations, for example, it's a series of open-ended sequential questions that help the person who's asking the questions to get further context and understanding about what's happening in their situation. But here's what most people don't realize is that by asking these sequential, open-ended, what I like to call collaborative questions, what also happens is that the person who's being asked those questions starts to think differently than they did before. They start to change their mind about what they're thinking, even if it's completely opposite to what they were thinking before, hmm. because of the questions that they're getting asked. Now, there's another part of this as well, is that uh, I think it was Harvard uh, University or Harvard Business Review did a study of, of uh, magnetic imaging of the brain to look at what happens when people are answering these types of collaboration, clarification, open-ended questions. And when people are asked about their opinions on things, their thought on things, like right now, my brain is being lit up with dopamine because I'm getting to uh, tell you all about what I think. When we do that with our buyers and they're telling us what they think about a situation, what they think the solution should look like, what they think the impact is or the, or the opportunity is, they are actually building trust with us because dopamine in our brains is where we form relationships and bonds of trust. So by asking these types of open-ended questions, we're understanding our buyers better. Our buyers are starting to change their minds and they're starting to build trust and rapport with us. However, the things that get in the way of salespeople being able to do that are a lot of the beliefs and mindsets, the things that are going on in their head that prevent them from doing it. I mean, it, I listen to ton of gong calls and almost all of the time I'm listening to these calls. I'm like, why didn't they ask this question? And then I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm like, okay, please ask this question. Please ask this question. And it's like, they just go right over it. Like they didn't even hear what the buyer was saying because they're wrapped up in their heads or they're thinking about, oh, this is this, that, or the next thing that's not supporting them in actually asking the questions when they know that they should. Thinking about all of the principles, the tactics that you've just described, which are rooted in science and psychological theory and what is going to motivate people. The idea in my mind when you were talking about your brain is being lit up with dopamine. I'm thinking at grander scale, how do I get my entire sales force to light up the skies with our customers' <laughs> dopamine? Cool. Yes. So we have this hypothesis. Okay, we are going to use a message. We're going to use a sales process. We're going to use a tactic where we are just unleashing a frenzy of questions that in theory are going to light up the dopamine receptors. Where do you then balance? Well, okay, here is our hypothesis for tactically how we're going to go achieve our goals. And maybe that's motivating because we also understand who the person is who's selling on a human level. We understand the prospect, what motivates them. And then there's just the data. There's the actual output of all of this activity, which hopefully reinforces our hypothesis. But sometimes maybe we may actually interpret or receive signals from the data that tells us, Ugh, we're not seeing the results that we expected, how do you then balance measuring the business against data? I know you said, hey, quota is very demotivating, but it is a form of data. 
How do we mm-hmm. balance again, going with the psychology and the neuroscience and the decision-making science with actually the hard facts of what operationally we can see in the CRM or wherever we're collecting all this activity data? Yeah. And it seems counterintuitive, but honestly, when we focused on the outcome, that's when we start to get emotionally involved in it. So when sales leaders are asking their reps, when is this deal going to close? When do you think it's going to close? You know, can you get it across the line earlier this month if we offer a discount? What those leaders are doing is creating emotional involvement in the sale, which is causing the salesperson to not actively listen, to not ask really good questions. By the way, active listening is the number one trait that buyers look for in salespeople. And it's the last trait that sales leaders are hiring for. So there's obviously a huge disconnect happening here. This is according to LinkedIn's Buyer First Survey studies. Now, one of the things that I often find that is happening is that the salesperson's wrapped up in their head. And so when the sales leader is listening to the call, they're like, we, we practiced this. You should have asked this question. You should have done this and you should have done that. And you should, and all of these should haves instead of focusing on the data of where progress is being made. So in behavioral change, when we try to make, uh, if you've ever read um, James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, one of the things that he talks about is making small, consistent changes over a period of time to reach a particular outcome. In the book, I, I use the story of my 105 pound weight loss that I went through during the pandemic. Now, I tried all of my life to lose all of this weight. I had all kinds of reasons as to why I couldn't do it. Just like salespeople have all kinds of reasons why they can't meet their quota. You know, company's pricing is too expensive. It's the economy, the competition, blah, blah, blah. Except that what I started to realize is that it's it's not so much about the big number, but it's the small wins that we're getting along the way. It was the small little incremental, what I would call leading KPIs that actually started to build the confidence that I had to be able to accomplish this big change. And so that's what I would encourage leaders to do is that as you're starting to position your sales team to get the dopamine lighting up, to have them putting their buyers first in all of this, is to identify small changes that can be measured that shows your salesperson a quick win that then will compel them to want to do more changes over a period of time so that, you know, say for you have a a salesperson on your team and you know that they're not asking enough really good targeted questions of their buyers is rather than say, we need you to ask 10 more questions on a call is to start to identify what is the small behavior that's going to lead to the big behavior. So for example, asking on, on the term of asking questions, one of the ways that I have salespeople ask this is I want you to go and start asking questions of everybody. Open-ended questions, the, the realtor uh, that you're working with to find a house or an apartment, the grocery store clerk, the Uber driver, your waiter, your waitress, just start asking small open-ended questions and then asking more open-ended clarification questions based on what you ask. And you will be amazed by how many people who start telling you their life story that's just full disclosure, but then also how much you learn about other people that you might not have ever learned or known about before. So there's small little ways that they can start practicing these things to start seeing some of the quick wins so that they can start to go after some of the bigger changes. Um, one of the BDRs that I was working with and coaching, his name is Zach, and he hated the idea of cold calling. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, he had to make so many calls per day. His leader was, you know, manager was on him about, you know, you need to be making more calls, not just email cadences and so forth. But he kept putting it off, right? I got to find the perfect messaging, the perfect strategy, the perfect this. And he was procrastinating because in his mind, he needed to get it right. He had a perfectionism thing that was going on, and that was getting in his way of being able to do it. And so when I was working with him, I'm like, I'm like, Zach, let's just find a way that you can start having fun with this. Like, yes, you need to make more calls, but let's make the goal of this call is to get someone to smile or laugh. 
Forget the meeting. Let's just see if we can get you to connect with that person. And then the meeting will follow once you've made that connection. So by focusing on the smaller win before the bigger outcome, you're able to start getting your reps to eagerly go after more changes. And that's what's going to accumulate into the bigger change, or in my case, 105 pounds of weight loss, small changes over a period of time. Well, congrats on that massive transformation in your own personal life. That is a absolutely superb achievement. So congratulations there. For the sales leaders, we've got frontline leaders, we've got second line leaders, we've got executives who are part of our audience. What are ways or mechanisms those leaders can use that help them avoid succumbing to that outcome fixation, that help them avoid making this an emotionally charged sale where your obsession as a leader with the team hitting quota trickles down to your reps who then start doing unnatural or irregular or counterproductive things because, of course, they are beholden to having their team deliver on results. Like We can't avoid or neglect that that is a reality. We're in business. This is not a charity or philanthropy. So that is an unavoidable, hard, maybe necessary evil or truth. But what can we advise our leaders to think about so they don't over-rotate and singularly focus on that approach, which then disenfranchises their people and probably maybe even jeopardizes the sale? Yeah. So the, the one exercise that I have all of my, everyone who I work with go through is a personal goal setting exercise. Mm-hmm. And this does so many different things. One is as a manager who's helping to guide your new salesperson through a personal meaningful goal exercise, you're building a relationship and rapport with them, yeah. number one. But what it does is it gets your salesperson to buy into whatever it is that needs to happen in order to reach their goals. So for example, um, I had one uh, enterprise account executive that I was working with. I think it was at VMware or something. And he said, I, look, I, I want to um, get an extra $75,000 in income next year so that my wife can get in vitro fertilization done because we've been trying to have a baby for five years. And I need an extra $25,000 so that once the baby is born, I can travel to South Africa to meet so that my family can meet the baby. That was a very personally meaningful goal that caused him to want to go above and beyond his quota and then caused him to want to create a plan of action that he shared with other people to hold him accountable and was continually fine-tuning and testing on that because it wasn't about making a number. It was about the number and what that number could do for him. And what it did for the leadership was instead of saying you've got a number to meet, you've got a quota to meet, it was more a conversation about what needs to happen for you to reach your personal goal this month so that you can. And it's not then about how are you going to get that deal to close faster. It was more about the buy-in that the salesperson had to do whatever it took to reach their personally meaningful goal. And in this particular person's instance, he definitely hit that number. His wife did end up getting pregnant. They did end up going to South Africa, but now he's become a leader in his company and has now taken that very same technique and works it throughout the rest of his team. It changes the way you keep people accountable. It changes the way you motivate them. It changes the interpersonal team dynamic because when you're rooting for someone because you know that their goal is tied to them getting their first house or taking care of their parents or having a baby, you're rooting for them and you're building a collaborative teamwork where everybody's trying to pull for everybody else. And it goes from collaboration. It goes to from competitive to collaborative. 
you know, collaborative selling isn't, I think that's anything new. However, in this day and age of sales where we have AI and we have buyers that are going through their journey so far, I think we need to think about sales as something that we do with other people and not something that we do to them. And that collaborative is really involving our buyers in the designing of the problems and the solutions rather than us coming in as the trusted advisor and expert who's going to tell them what they should be doing. They know a lot more a lot of times than we do, and we need to give them the credit for that. When you talk about sales as happening for someone or with someone as opposed to to someone, how do you spot that behavior? How symptomatically does it show itself either in the persona who's selling, in the process that they're trying to conduct so we can triage and diagnose, oh, we've got a two problem and we need to correct this for with or for them. Yeah. Well, so one of the easiest ways to determine if you're, you have a disconnect and you're making your sales all about you is something that I call the wee wee factor. And what it simply is, 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 is auditing the language, like whether it's in your calls or your email messages or even your website copy. How much are you saying me, we, I, our? You're talking about yourself, your company, your product solution, everything that you care about. Because what happens is when you talk about the things you care about, the dopamine gets released in your brain. It's addictive. However, if you can use language or audit your language to look at how much are we saying me, uh, you, yours, because that means this is buyer focused language. It appeals to buyers because now you're including them in the conversation. They're a part of it. Actually, they're the focus of it. And that appeals to them at a much greater rate. So I like the ratio of, you know, for every time that you mention yourself, talk about the buyer three more times and the things that they care about. And it's a simple way. I've, I have often found like when uh, sellers are sending me their email messages for feedback, I'm redlining all of the we's and the youth <laughs> and I'm going through, I'm like, how can you make this a statement about what your buyer cares about? And how do you going to start this email about what they think and what they care about? It's, it's so much easier to know what to say when you're not trying to think about how is this going to make me look good? How is this going to be perceived? Instead, focus on what does this person need right now? Well, to make sure for sellers and leaders out there, you are not complicit in committing the wee wee problem. Strike <laughs> those pronouns from your vocabulary and replace them with you and yours. Really exactly. sound, timeless advice. All these tactics that they're giving us, whether you're an IC seller, whether you're a frontline leader, a second line leader, if we're just absolutely dripping on all the words that are coming out of your mouth, Carol, tell us a little bit more about Buyer First. What is sort of the book about? How can we get our hands on it? Explain a little bit more. So the book is, a, is actually written for small business owners and solopreneurs who need to sell, as well as individual salespeople and companies who have either hit a wall or they're in a new role, or like the majority of sales today, trying to figure out what's my place in it in the age of AI and the changing dynamics that are happening with our buyers today. And so the book... We have tons of sales books out there. Like you see the bookshelf behind me with all of the sales tips and tricks and hacks. And we focus so much on the activities of the things that we need to do. What we don't realize is that the reason that it's not working, the reason we're spending $70 billion a year in sales training and only what 50% of salespeople are still making quota is because we don't realize it's the mindsets and beliefs that we have towards the activities mm -hmm. that are going to dictate how and how well, or if we do them at all. And when we start to change our beliefs and our mindsets towards sales and salespeople have these as much as anybody else of the different mindsets that we look at that get in the way of executing on the tactics that they know they can do and should do. 
but you get in that moment, you're on that call and you're listening to it as a leader and you're like, look, we ran through this. They know what to do. Why are they chickening out on the call? This is what we're not talking about is the hidden mindsets behind those activities that are hindering it. Well, being able to identify what are those roadblocks? What are those hurdles? What are those hindrances? The first step to being that type of seller that makes the 75,000, that makes the 25,000 to achieve those personal goals. So again, for leading the charge, Carol, in identifying and then myth busting or debunking what stands in the way of us really reaching our full potential. I have to offer my sincerest thanks to you for pushing forward the entire craft and profession of sales. Carol, you. you'll, you'll know that uh, if you've listened to the podcast that as we wrap, we always like to ask all of our guests the exact same question. It's a nice, fun way to provide some continuity for each episode. And I'm super curious to hear your answer to this. So this shouldn't come as a surprise if you've listened to the podcast before. But the question is, if you could describe sales in just one word, what would it be? Connecting. Why is that? Because sales is the connection between problems and solutions. And that when we are doing sales in a buyer first way, we're making the world a better place because we're solving real world problems. We're connecting people, we're connecting solutions. And that I believe is what sales is all about. Well, you have certainly done more than your fair share of connecting the dots for us on the inside of sales and hopefully by extension, connecting the dots for our sellers and their customers who are out on the front lines. Well, Carol, this has been an absolute treat. Thanks so much for sharing not just, again, of your wealth of experience in the decades that you've been doing this, but also the incredibly relevant, actionable takeaways that are included in your book, Buyer First, for listeners out there that want to get a hold or a handle on what Carol's espousing at Harvard Business School and beyond to her clients. Please check out Buyer First on Amazon, as I mentioned before, a absolutely respectable 4.8 out of five stars. That's how you know it's real. Yes, in fact, we've got one hater out there, but everyone else is loving what she's putting down. They're buying what she's selling. Carol, thanks so much for joining Reveal. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performing sales teams, then head on over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard, come on, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you may listen.